as I was sitting here just now, for whatever reason, because the mind does what it does, an image came to me of a picture of myself when I was probably hmm, six or seven. I had little pigtails. I was pretty cute, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And um, what is true, and I'm really not going to talk, I wasn't planning even on saying this. What is true about that little girl is that uh, I was growing up in the bosom of a very left-wing religion as the opiate of the masses family. They weren't at all interested in things spiritual. And as early as six or seven, I knew that I was. Um, I actually ended up raising myself Catholic secretly, <laughs> which is a good way to raise yourself Catholic, good way to be Catholic. <laughs> pick and choose what you want. (laughs) And I was just realizing that despite the itinerary or agenda that my family had planned for me, there's something about that little girl that would be very happy to be here with you tonight. So I want to offer the talk, actually, for that child and for all of the children who are have somehow managed to grow up and to find your way here tonight. So we talked the first night a little bit about that teaching from Chogyam Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, where he says, if you can't meditate, travel. And um, I've been traveling for several weeks now, actually, on the road. Um, I left Hawaii on the 25th of July and won't get back until the 26th of September. So it's been a long, long trip. And I've always kind of liked this teaching. And maybe I like it some because, you know, when you're on the road and things get really busy, there isn't always the same kind of time to meditate that maybe we create in our daily lives. So I thought, well, maybe I'm not meditating, but at least I'm traveling. But it's an interesting teaching um, because it's pointing at something that I think is really important for all of us. And here we are. We're not traveling right this moment. You're sitting here. um, You're doing a lot of meditating. You're doing it for hours every day. You know, the better part of your waking hours. And the more you do it, the more the whole day becomes meditating. So if you get up at 6 and go to bed at 10, that's what? Mm, 16 hours of meditating every day. It's a lot of meditating. And um, even when you're doing walking practice, you're not going much of anywhere. You're not exactly traveling when you're just doing laps back and forth. So what is there for us in this teaching? So you've all done a lot of traveling. We've all traveled some. You've traveled just to get here, as I said that night. And I've been utterly astounded at how many of you have come great distances to be here. We have people from foreign countries. We have people from the states that are not contiguous with the other 48. And we have people from, you know, quite remote corners of the country. So we know that when you travel, it's dicey, right? It's dicey at best. And you never know how it's going to go. You know, you shut your suitcase and head out the door and almost anything can happen. And sometimes there's cancellations and sometimes um, the weather gets really difficult and Sometimes you meet some new people, and because you create new friends, then you head off in new directions. And sometimes you eat some very strange food, and sometimes you get very sick. And the plans change, you know. And what's also interesting is that when we travel, as you head, particularly when you head into places that are new, no one knows who you are. 
They have no idea what to expect from you. So one of the things I do with my life these days is I do volunteer work at the National Park near where I live. I wear a little brown Boy Scout type uniform. It's pretty cute. I thought one of these days when I come to teach at Spirit Rock, I'm going to bring the uniform and wear it when I teach. And part of what I do is I talk to people like you who come in and say, well, here I am at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. What is there to see? And so we find out, you know. But sometimes people come in and they have, if you will excuse me, Bob, they have a sheaf of papers like this. And that's their itinerary. Sometimes it's fatter than that, actually. And they have pages and pages and pages and their itinerary is all laid out, and they know exactly where they're going every day. They have all the notes for that particular part of the park, and they have the information about what they're going to see, and they have the places where they're going to stay, which are usually reserved, and they have the place where they're going to eat, and they say things like, I've come here to see the lava going into the ocean. Or they've come here and they say, I've come here because I've seen pictures of this lava tube and I want to hike through it. And it's a setup. It's a setup because sometimes I have to say, well, the lava isn't going into the ocean right now. You know, that was last year. Although actually right now it is, or today it is anyway. And sometimes I have to say, well, that trail isn't open anymore. You can't go there. And sometimes, because Hawaii is always changing, I have to say, well, that particular landmark, this thing that you've seen pictures of many times, it's not there anymore. The lava has come and covered it over. They're not always very happy when I have to say these things. So the Buddha teaches us. He says, attachment to anything, anything at all, anything whatsoever, including your itinerary, will bring suffering. It will. And who among us doesn't have an itinerary? You know, we all have itineraries, and we have itineraries for our journeys, and probably you had an itinerary of sorts for this retreat, and maybe you have an itinerary for your life. Many of us were given a kind of itinerary by our families when we were children. I was, I know. It did not include being a Buddhist meditation teacher. And maybe the itinerary says, grow up and be a responsible citizen. You know, vote. Have a job that earns good money. Be good. Stop being mischievous or lazy or any of those things that little kids are. Be smart and get good grades for sure. And, you know, it usually involves some sort of achievement or even perfection. Be a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, certainly don't be a mailman and don't be a chef, even if that's what you love to do. So we lock into <coughs> these places. And so tonight I want to look a little at how we create suffering with our attachments to things being in a particular way. So I want to talk about a couple of stories. I'm going to talk about a little bit about mine and a little bit about uh, one of my favorite Buddhist people called the Emperor Wu, and a little bit about you, maybe. So I lived in California for about 50 years. I came here in my early 20s. I got married twice, once to the wrong man, and once, very happily, the second marriage. Raised a couple of kids, worked as a therapist, took, you know, the normal number of vacations. Um, none of them particularly extraordinary. Learned to meditate um, after quite a while. And after a time, my teacher uh, suggested that maybe I could teach, which is kind of how it happens in this world. You know, after you practice for a while, then if your teacher suggests that maybe you could be a teacher, then that's how you do it. 
So I was a therapist and a Dharma teacher for quite a while, um, as Bob told you um, this morning or yesterday or whenever it was, got involved. I was in Santa Cruz and so the sitting group grew into a, a meditation center and now it's under Bob's supervision and even bigger meditation center. It's gotten so big they just had to move. So um, I was very, very busy leading this kind of life of a therapist and a Dharma teacher, pretty conventional, since I was also still following the itinerary that my parents had handed me, you know, and be, you know, successful. And they had some pretty strict ideas about what was right and what was wrong. And there were many things in life that I didn't have time to pursue. So this probably sounds pretty familiar to some of you. You know, that way in which we lock into our lives, our careers, whatever we're doing, and a lot of things fall by the wayside. So the Emperor Wu, who lived in the 13th century in China, was apparently a pretty good emperor, and he was a great warrior, and he was beloved by his people, and he was very busy fighting battles and taking care of his people, but it wasn't what he really, really wanted to do. And there was a place in the Emperor Wu where what he really wanted to do was he wanted to learn more about spiritual practice. But every time he tried, it didn't fit with the picture that his people had of what it was to be an emperor. And so they would, you know, they wanted him to be an emperor. They didn't want him to ask difficult questions. So they would kind of brush him off and shine him on and give him some simple practices, maybe if they were the local priest or whatever, but nothing that would take him very deep. And it was very frustrating. But it wasn't the emperor itinerary that everybody expected him to follow. So you could consider for a moment your own story, your own itinerary, if you will, what were you taught to be? What were you taught to be? What strategies did you develop in your own growing up so that you could be safe and successful in your family and in your life? And what are the dreams, perhaps, that you had to ignore or even to hide And where are the places in you that are so habituated that you easily say, I am a person who? I am a person who has to have nine hours of sleep every night. Or I am a person who never sleeps more than five hours. Or I am a person who eats only the most organic food. Or I'm a person who has to run at least six miles a day and go to the gym three times a week in addition to that. Or I am a person who can't meditate unless I have my own shawl and a particular cushion and I can't settle into walking practice unless I'm in my walking spot. It gets interesting around here sometimes. <laughs> so the Buddha and his teaching over and over again. If you read the suttas, you'll see the Buddha has a shtick, like a lot of teachers do, and his big shtick is about the nature, origin, and development of suffering. This is what he was really interested in. And he yearned for suffering to end for all (coughs) beings. He wanted all beings, and this means you, he wanted you to learn to live with ease and serenity, with equanimity, a kind of balance as things come and go in life, and to be happy. So his most basic teaching about suffering and the ending of suffering is often referred to as the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. It was the first teaching that he gave. And it's a teaching that's sometimes referred to as turning the wheel of the Dharma. And the sutta is called the Dhammachakka Sutta. I like it. It feels like the wheel is rolling. And in fact, when we first 
opened this hall when we dedicated it and had our very, very first little ceremony, which was just mostly the teachers and the board. But there were some monks and they, they processed into the hall chanting the Dhamma Chakka Sutta. That was the first thing that reverberated in here. Um, so he says in this teaching, he says, first, there is suffering. There is suffering. It's, it's not, some people say Buddhism is all about suffering. You have to suffer. He's not saying that. He's just saying it, it is. It's true. It's there. Anybody here who hasn't suffered? You know, we've all suffered in lots and lots of ways. And there's the suffering that we call pain. You know, there's just the pain. Your body hurts. You know, it gets cramped or it gets injured or you sit too long in one way or you start getting old and things begin to deteriorate. And that's the pain of the body. And there's a lot of suffering. Dukkha is the Pali word, in case you're interested. There's a lot of dukkha or suffering that happens because nothing lasts. Nothing lasts found anything that lasts ever? You know, it doesn't. I have actually on my altar at home, I have a little piece of rock that I brought from Joshua Tree National Monument, which was probably not legal. And I have another little piece of rock which a geologist friend of mine brought home from the volcano just a few weeks ago. The rock from Joshua Tree is 1.7 billion years old. The rock from Hawaii, well, at this point, it's probably about three months old, or maybe four. And <coughs> they sit side by side. But you know, 1.7, that's nothing. I mean, it's, it's, it too will disappear and change. And even though it's that old, it's still not permanent. But we want things to be permanent. We want them to be permanently set, and we want them to be satisfactory. And so this is what leads into the cause of suffering. We don't like it. Anybody like hurting? Nobody likes to hurt. You know, or not, you know, not a lot anyway. And, and it, we want things to stay the way they are, or we want them to change sooner than they're changing, which happens. There's a wonderful teaching in 12-step work that says pain is required because it does seem to come with a package, but suffering is optional. So, so we get caught. We get caught in addictions. We get caught obsessing about things. We get caught needing to control our lives and the lives of others. And this is what the Buddha is talking about. This is the attachment which is causing suffering. And then he says, the really good news part is, it's possible not to get caught in that. Isn't that great? It's really possible. And we can learn to find that place where we're not caught in attachment. So there can be an ending to suffering. And then the last of the Noble Truths, the fourth one, um, says um, there's a path out, um, which is called the Eightfold Path. And it's a path of wise understanding and attitude and of living our life in a way that's ethical and harmless. So wise speech and wise action and a wise choice of livelihood. And then training the mind and heart. So wise effort and mindfulness and concentration. He also says there's one more really important aspect to his teaching which comes up over and over again. And that is that in any given moment, we are living out the consequences of our previous actions. And it's not only of our own previous actions, it's also the actions of our families and our friends and our nations and cultures, the people who are are around us. So this incredible web of actions and 
their consequences. And this is the teaching about karma. And it's often spoken of really simplistically. Oh, it's his karma, you know. But it's not at all simple. It's so complicated, in fact, that the Buddha called it unthinkable. And he said, if you try to figure out the karma of any particular moment, you will actually go crazy because you can't think it. So for a moment, we'll try, right? So think about the karma that brings us all here into this particular moment. So each one of us has a whole series of things. I have that little girl, and I have my foray into the Catholic Church, and I had other spiritual seeking that I did in a whole period of time doing Jungian practice, and one thing led to another. All kinds of teachers and family and friends and influences that led me to this point. But there are over 90 of us in this room, and each one of you has a web that's at least as complicated as mine. And then, of course, we have everything that came about bringing Spirit Rock to this place, and actually the Nature Conservancy owned the land before we bought it, and so there was all about the Nature Conservancy, and then everything that meant that we have a country and a way of living, and pretty soon it just, you know, it goes on and on. It's so big, and everything had to come together in just the right way for us to all be here. One little thing could have changed and one of you might not have been here. One little thing could have changed and one or more of us might not have been born. It's pretty interesting to start to think about it, but as I say, don't do it too much because then it won't be good for you. <laughs> so let's look a mom at a moment at the process because this can be really helpful. Something happens. Maybe somebody walks into the room. And so there's a moment where you perceive this person who's come into the room. But your mind is already colored. You have the past experiences, everything that you've gone through. And you have a lot of habits. And you may have the mood of the day. You may be depressed or irritated or grumpy or really, really happy. So sometimes this past information, the past experience, can be very useful. That's a truck. Get out of the way. You, you need to know that so that you get out of the way and you're safe. But sometimes it's reactive and it's inaccurate. And then often we act out of that and we continue to cause suffering. It's so hard to be completely fresh in any given moment. So, you know, maybe somebody you love is late. It's late. They were due at 5 o'clock and now it's 5.30 and now it's 6. And now it's 7.15. And what's going on in your mind? What are they doing? They are, and maybe you have a list of what they're doing. I know he's doing this. I know she's doing that. Maybe she's squashed on the freeway. That would be terrible. She's dead. And, you know, you can work up a whole head of steam about how you know that they're dead and you're just waiting for the police to pull up at the door to tell you so when they walk in the door, what happens? We don't see clearly in moments like that. And it's a kind of ignorance that we can't see clearly. We're seeing through the lens of our memory, maybe previous latenesses. This might be somebody who's been consistently late, consistently said, I'll be home at five, and walked in the door at far later than that. Or it may be the lens of the story that you created. They're squashed on the freeway and you're really scared. And because of all that story, our consciousness has a particular flavor and we may be angry or terrified. Or maybe, you know, maybe 
It's somebody walking in, let's forget about the lateness, it's a new person and you're really happy that day and they look pretty good. It's so important to begin to see how we build houses out of stories and thought and consciousness and we live inside and we look out the windows of those stories. And this is the core teaching of the Buddha. He talks about this. It's called the cycle of dependent origination, if you want to know. And it's how we create suffering over and over again, endless numbers of cycles where we look out through these rigid walled houses. Some people understand it, that it goes over many, many lifetimes, but it's also a really sophisticated psychological teaching that's about the cycles of suffering in this lifetime. So, we come to this point and we look out through the windows of this house and we recognize the event and we name it, seeing, hearing, we make contact, And it all happens very, very fast, very, very fast. And we react, I like it, I want it, I really want it. Or no, get rid of it, I hate it, take it away. So when your loved one comes home, do you react like, oh, hello, how are you and what happened? Maybe if you're really lucky. But often we react out of the story. We're so scared. Where were you? And lots of anger and upset. And then, of course, your beloved or whoever responds out of their defensiveness and the whole cycle can go around and around and around. So these moments of making contact, of seeing and perceiving are so important. So you may remember that Bob a couple of times has talked about the second of the foundations of mindfulness. We've spent a lot of time already on the foundation of the body, and we will continue to. The second is the foundation of what's called Vedana, or the feeling tone. It's not feeling like we use the word in our culture. It means the the place where each experience is either pleasant or it's unpleasant, or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Sometimes people call that neutral. So everything, everything that happens is one of those. It's not necessarily that way permanently, but that's our initial hit, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And that's where the reactivity kicks in. So important to begin to see this. And so important, even as you're sitting here in these next days, to begin to be aware, oh, this is really yummy. Watch. You're having a really sweet, yummy sit. The body's cool. You're not hurting for change. The birds are singing outside. The room is filled with beautiful sunlight. And you think, oh, cool. I think I'll sit the two-month retreat next winter. (laughs) Ah, I wonder if I can still get in. And, huh, maybe after that, I'll go to Barrie and set the three-month retreat in the fall. And then after that, maybe I'll go to Thailand. And what would it cost to get a ticket? And off you go, right? All because it's pleasant. And you know what will happen if you're sitting here and it's unpleasant. You're not planning to sit the two-month retreat if everything hurts. You're not. You're thinking about Hawaii or the Bahamas or just your own bed and home and comfortable life. So we can begin to watch that because that's where, as I said, that's where we react. The person that comes in It's been an unpleasant experience and we react out of that unpleasantness. Or the person comes in and we are enchanted by their loveliness or their 
handsomeness or by the romance of the evening and we fall in love. But have you ever fallen in love with the wrong person because you didn't see them clearly? Is there anybody in this room who's never fallen in love with the wrong person? We all have, you know, and because we haven't seen clearly. We see kind of what we want to see through the lens. We can't change what has brought us to this moment. You can't change what has brought you to this particular moment in your life. You can't change your past. You can't change your conditioning. Whatever you were told about yourselves, whatever itinerary was given to you, that's there. We are the inheritors of the reverberations of our own actions and those of others. And you will, out of that inheritance, experience everything as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That's just how it will be. But you can begin to see it. Your buttons will be pushed, but you don't necessarily have to do whatever the pushed button leads you to. Feelings will come up. You can interrupt the cycle. We can catch ourselves before we react. So we don't have to keep going around and around. You don't have to live out of that itinerary for forever. So for me, after many years of living in California and the last 30 of them in Santa Cruz, we left four years ago. And we went to live on the big island of Hawaii um, in Volcano Village. It's a little tiny village. It has about 2,500 people, has no traffic lights. It has maybe six street lights in the whole place. Doesn't have a meditation center. I'm trying hard not to found one. <laughs> I didn't have any clients. It's really different from California. And I didn't have an itinerary. What was I going to be? Who, who would I be now? You know, what would, I, what would I do? And I could, after all, I could try to continue. I could found a center. I am still doing some teaching, obviously. But I didn't. One of the smartest things we did was we purchased a really small trailer and a tow, tow car, tow vehicle, which we leave on the mainland. And um, we use it to explore the country and visit family and friends. And we wanted to go to visit other national parks and parts of the country we haven't seen, you know, Crater Lake and Yellowstone and Mesa Verde and many others. But the interesting thing is, when we stay, when we do this travel, we're not always in parks and, you know, forested campgrounds and that kind of thing. Sometimes we're like in KOA campgrounds, that's campgrounds spelled with a K, you know, one of those places with huge RVs, the kinds that have upstairs and downstairs and <laughs> dining rooms and TVs. I mean, they're the most amazing things. And we've started meeting some of the people because you do. One of the things you do, just in case you ever go to one of those parks, <laughs> is after dinner you go out and you walk around the campground. And people stop and chat, and so we've stopped to chat. And you know, it's a lot of older folks and um, people with really little dogs. And <laughs> I'm a little prejudiced. I have a sort of a medium-sized dog. We found out we liked them. These people who are really different from us. I can talk RV language now. I can talk about how I pull a rig. My rig. My rig is that little teeny trailer over there with my tow vehicle, which is our old Toyota 4Runner. And we know all about hooking up, which is not what it means in the dating world. <laughs> and we also know about dumping, which is not what it means in the relationship world, but it's similar in some ways. So, you know, you learn this whole language. 
this is not what Dharma teachers talk about. It's not. I didn't think, anyway. And, of course, as we meet these people, we often suspect, oh, they probably have really different political ideas. We're very careful not to talk about politics or religion. Um, because, you know, our suspicion is some of them are, are, would not be so interested in what we're interested in. My itinerary never specified that I would be one of these people. What has happened? I didn't expect to end up as a park ranger wearing a brown uniform. And in fact, not too long ago, I was at the desk in the visitor center and I had finished helping somebody and I looked up and here's this woman and her eyes got big and her mouth dropped open and she said, I know you. <laughs> and it turned out to be somebody who had sat many, many retreats with me, who didn't know I was in Hawaii, had no idea that I'd be wearing a brown uniform. And what is this, you know, does, it doesn't compute. I didn't expect to be a member, a member of a hula troupe and learning traditional Hawaiian dances and traditional Hawaiian spirituality under the guidance of a fairly strict itinerary. Actually, right at this very moment, my class is starting in Volcano Village. Not there this week. It's not on the itinerary. As for the Emperor Wu, we left him back there being a good emperor. One day, he went to court and he saw in his court, so this is China in the 13th century, people weren't too tall then. He saw this really tall guy, red hair, blue eyes, with a really powerful kind of energy about him. He was really drawn to him. And he thought, well, maybe he'll see something that, or tell me something that, I, that would be helpful. So he went over to him. And he said, well, you know, what happens? You know, I've built a lot of schools and hospitals and done things for poor people. What about the merit of those things that I've done? And this person looked at him and he said, no merit. Well, you don't say that to the emperor after he's built schools and hospitals, right? And then he said, well, what about all the holy teachers' teachings, the vast numbers of Buddhist scriptures and volumes of books. And the person looked at him and he said, yeah, nothing special, vast emptiness. So the emperor was really intrigued. You know, was, what? So he looked at him and he said, who are you? Who are you standing there? And the emperor and the person looked at him and it was Bodhidharma, the great um, Zen sage, and he said, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> and the emperor was so undone that, you know, his head whirled, and by the time he looked up again, Bodhidharma was gone. He never saw him again. But what that did was it taught him how to step out of his itinerary. And so every now and then, he'd kind of disappear. And what he did was he would go off and he'd find a monastery and he'd sign on to clean the bathrooms and sweep the pathways and do various little things. And then after a while, the people at court would be tired of him getting, being gone and they'd go find him and they'd drag him back and um, give a lot of money to the monastery so it was pretty profitable for them and, um, and put him back to work with the old itinerary, and then he'd leave again. But he found a way to pursue his own practice. So the real question is, okay, for you, on your journey, you know, what has changed your itinerary? Because it probably has changed several times as you've traveled through life. You know, and you can probably find moments like being in therapy or finding a sitting group or reading a particular book, or you got sober after years of addiction, or you went to a retreat and everything changed, you know? We even have 
it's interesting, we grew up, don't we, with itineraries for our bodies. You know, sometimes, sometimes to begin with, the body isn't the body that your parents ordered up. You know, people are born who have visual issues or who are deaf or all kinds of physical things that aren't, um, aren't the perfect body that we'd all like to have. Those of us who came in fairly healthy and um, who were supposed to be strong and well, and we think that's how it's going to be, and then, boom, you get sick. You go to the doctor and you hear that thing you didn't want to hear. Or you get hurt, you know. Or <laughs> you get old. What is this? You know, you're getting old. And the body starts falling apart. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, it just falls apart. It's not behaving. It is the itinerary, just not the itinerary that we wanted. Or, more importantly, you came to this retreat, and you probably came, as we mentioned that first night, you may have come with a bit of an itinerary, with an agenda, how it was supposed to be. And you came with the right equipment, and you found the perfect spot in the hall with the good view and the nice neighbors. It's kind of like choosing a campsite, right? And maybe by now, some of you have probably chosen a second campsite because you didn't like the first one so well. Um, you know, the view wasn't so good or the neighbors weren't happy-making. And, and we think, that's what's going to make it all right. Does it? Is the mind any quieter or does the body hurt less? Not usually. It's not, it's not the solution. You may even have thought you brought the right inner equipment the right kindness, or the patience, or the insight, or the calm. Are you having the retreat you ordered up? Probably not. It may not be awful. It may even be wonderful. You may have thought it was going to be awful, and it's wonderful. It's different from what we expected. Or maybe you've lost your way. You're confused. You have no idea what's going on at this, end of the, at this point in the retreat. An old Jungian analyst who was um, someone that I knew well over quite a period of time, her name was Sheila Moon, and she wrote a series of children's books um, that were really about the inner journey, or wonderful books. So here's a little piece of dialogue that I've always, I've always loved, and I just found it again the other day. And so the, the narrator is speaking, and she says, I wonder where we're going. And then the wise being of the story, who's actually a beetle in this case, says, wherever the way is going. But where do you suppose the way is going? And he says, wherever we go. That doesn't really make sense, does it? And he says, oh, yeah. Quite good sense. Why? Do you know any method by which you can go one way and your path another? Not the path, but your path? Well, if you put it that way, I guess not. But what about crossroads? Couldn't you choose the wrong one? And he says, I suppose you probably could. However, If it was the wrong way you chose, it would still be your way, wouldn't it? Isn't that wonderful? It would still be your way. Yes, I answered. Yes, it probably would. (laughs) So wherever you are, remember that instruction that I mentioned just yesterday morning? This is the way it is. Wherever you are in this moment, at any moment in the retreat, this is the way it is. It's the way for right now. It's not the right way or the wrong way or the path. It's your way. So how can you be free in that moment? not the way you ordered up. It's not the moment you ordered up. Where is the freedom in that moment? And the answer is in not 
wanting it to be another moment. It's as simple as that. Not wanting it to conform to any previous previous identity that you ever had, or a previous agenda, or a previous itinerary. It's only when we can be fully here in this moment, just as it is, that we can make wise decisions about what our current actions need to be, what to do next. Sometimes I think to myself, am I having too much fun? Our Dharma teachers, who are about to be 75 in about three weeks, I think, supposed to have this much fun? Am I supposed to be traipsing around the country and being a park ranger and dancing hula and even performing once in a while? You know, it's not that I don't have more to learn about freedom. I have plenty to learn about freedom. But if I were clinging to my old itinerary or if I were clinging to the picture that my parents had for me, which did not include being a hula dancer, (laughs) I would be really unhappy indeed. I posted something on my Facebook page not too long ago that said, when I get old, I don't want people thinking, what a sweet little old lady. (laughs) I want them saying, oh crap, what is she up to now? (laughs) Right? So no sweet little old lady stuff. So the Emperor Wu, you know, it changed for him. It changed. He let go of the itinerary of being the good emperor. He found the new way. He found his own version of dancing hula, I suppose. And really, what about you? What about you? Can you let go of the itinerary for a bit? Can you let the retreat be what it is? I want to be like the river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. Can you be surprised? Wow! I didn't know I could feel that way. I didn't know I could be that angry. I didn't know I could be that scared. I didn't know I could be that quiet. Whatever it is. If you're lost, just be lost. It's okay. You know, we're all lost some of them. Maybe we're lost a lot of the time. You never know what you will find if you let yourself be lost. Can you try to meet each moment watching for that place where we can get caught, where we can react? Watching for the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the neutrality. Can we see what happens when we let it unpack itself just as it is? This week is your chance to practice this. That's why we call it practice. It's practice. You're learning. So moment after moment after moment. Sometimes you will get caught. That's great. Then you find out what getting caught is like. Look, wow, I'm suffering. And you see what happened. Oh, look, I got caught there. And sometimes you go, look, for a little bit of a moment here, I'm not suffering. How cool is that? And really notice that. So you see these moments where you can rest. It might be with the breath. It might be with the awareness of a sound. It might be the awareness of head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinew, bone, bone marrow, kidneys, just as they are, strong, weak, healthy, or not, just exactly as they are. And in this way, there is no suffering. We are learning to be free from suffering. We are taking our journey one moment at a time. So I think, I think I'll stop there, actually. I think, no, actually, I think I will read the poem that I didn't read, if I can find it. Here it is. It's a little shorter than the other one I had, and I think it serves just as well.
It's by Robert Bly, and it's called Things to Think. He says, think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, maybe wounded and deranged. Or think that a moose has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you have never seen. When someone, or perhaps something, knocks on the door, think that he's about to give, give you something large, tell you you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. So let's just stay exactly as you are. Let's breathe together for a moment. So thank you very, very much for listening. Please enjoy the walking. Please do not wait for me to leave the hall because it's going to take me a while to unfold up here. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.